and welcome back to Power Hour. We are proudly part of the Until Saturday family. And it is so fun to get to discuss actual football. We're finally through week one, all the way through, which is a good reminder that you're going to want to subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter. You're going to want to listen to this feed. And you're going to want to follow this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. If you drop us a five-star review, we will really appreciate it. You could also leave a question with your review and we'll answer it on the show. Also subscribe to the Until Saturday page on YouTube because we'll be going live every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. As a reminder for Power Hour fans specifically, we will be calling out for questions for the open bar segment early each week. So be sure to be on the lookout for that next week as well. Chris, you're Chris Vanini. I'm Nicole Auerbach. Guess I should introduce ourselves. But it is wonderful to be back with you and have actual games to discuss. So many games, so many interesting results. Yes, we're at home now in our in our studio setups. We're not in a DFW airport ballroom this time. We're back into the regular flow of power hour. And boy, once again, we have a lot to talk about. We do. And because we are recording this midweek, we're going to start with the very eventful game on Monday night. So let's just get started. We'll jump right into the Power Five. It's a part of the show where we hit on five newsy topics and we try to go about a minute. It's never a minute, but we will we'll try to be quick, just like a power hour. Power Five will begin with number one, Riley Leonard, breakout star for Duke in a game, by the way, that had its own window. There's no NFL yet. Monday night, everyone was watching Clemson Duke which is not great for Clemson and Clemson fans, but great for Duke because they break out, get the first top 10 win since 1989. Riley Leonard, unfortunately, though, missed a deadline filing his homework on Monday night. Professor Taylor, please let this man live. This is a top 10 moment. Top 10 upset. They haven't done this since well before Riley Leonard was alive. Well, Professor Taylor did respond. I want you to get you to this sound here. Professor Taylor, if you're seeing this, please let me turn in my homework late because it's due tonight, I think, at 12. So it may already be 12. Thank you to the ACC Network for that. We did get a response on Tuesday that Professor Taylor did not give him an extension because he had other football player teammates in the class who sent in their homework early. So that's a tough break for Riley Leonard on a week that otherwise not so many tough breaks. Massive, massive win for Mike Elko in year two. Look, you got to credit Professor Taylor. He brought the receipts. He's got other players on the team who turned in their homework on time. I, I I, cannot argue with that normally in these situations. I let it slide, but his teammates uh, his teammates got the work in. So shout out to Duke. Shout out to Professor Taylor. Shout out to having college football on a Monday night and a Sunday night. I enjoy week one. It's kind of a, a bit of a slog with four or five straight days of football, but uh, I enjoy this. We should do this all the time. Forget the NFL, get rid of the NFL, just have college football on the weekends. I think that would be something we will all uh, get into. And I think that it's basically even. I was trying to, I was going back and forth on this. Like, what is a better recruiting pitch for Duke? It's Is it beating Clemson and storming the field? Or is it the fact that Riley Leonard did not get off easy on doing his homework? I don't know. I don't know. I've got a cousin who went to Duke. It's probably the homework part. It might uh, be. Yeah, I I think that'll work for that pitch. And we'll get into 
Duke and Mike Elko a little bit later in the show. Number two, speaking of the ACC, Florida State college football playoff contender. They dominated, destroyed LSU in the second half on Sunday. They looked as dangerous offensively as we thought. Jordan Travis, Keon Coleman, Johnny Wilson, and everybody they've got there. Up to number four, I think, in the AP poll. I've got them at number two in my 133 rankings. It's been a slow build for Florida State, but this is the team that they knew they were building toward. Nicole, what did you make of Florida State with that uh, emphatic performance on Sunday? Well, I don't think we can really talk about it without looking at what Clemson looked like, too, because heading into the season, I believed that these two programs could be a cut above the rest. I I believed in Garrett Riley as the offensive coordinator and Kate Klubnick. And then we saw basically the exact same old Clemson offense that struggled. We saw a lot of mistakes in the red zone, which that's probably not going to happen every week. But It gives me some clarity as I look at the top of the ACC because of what we saw from Florida State. I mean, all the pieces were there. They looked great on paper. I've been saying this all offseason. One of the things that I've been most impressed with by Mike Norvell in this build is that they haven't skipped any steps. They, They did this methodically. He recruited. He supplemented with the portal. They rebuilt their offensive line. And now they have a Heisman Trophy caliber quarterback, perhaps, and an ACC championship caliber team. And this was the game with LSU that was going to determine to me whether or not we're talking college football playoff or just ACC. And I think now we're talking college football playoff because this is a really, really talented team. They fly all over the field. We saw some great defensive plays. We saw some great offensive plays. And it was just a masterful game called by Mike Norvell. There were just so many things that I was impressed by, especially by them pulling away from LSU, not leaving any doubt. I I thought that was just a statement. And uh, yeah, I mean, especially now that we saw Clemson looking like the way that they did on Monday night, it's Florida State's ACC to lose. And I think if they're going to run through college football this season, we're absolutely going to be talking about them as as a playoff contender. Well, it, it's the kind of win where they can now afford a loss somewhere yes, along the yes. way and Great make point. the playoff, whether that's at Clemson, whether that's Duke, which suddenly looks like a tough game, or the ACC championship game. Like the, the, As long as LSU isn't a tire fire, which we don't think it will be, but that's the kind of performance. And it's I keep thinking back about two years ago, almost th- this exact time, Florida State starts the season 0-4. They lose to Jacksonville State on what is essentially a Hail Mary play. They finished that season 5-7. and seven. They lose Travis Hunter to Jackson State. By the way, read David Ubbin and Justin Williams' great story on Travis Hunter on TheAthletic.com. And we have one of the bigger Twitter moments in college football Twitter history when you have the fire Mike Norvell Twitter spaces going on. And then you have the supplemental keep Mike Norvell uh, Twitter space from the Miami fans. I think at this point, those sides have flipped. I think Florida State fans are very happy that they had Mike Norvell. I think Miami fans wish they didn't. But this, every I visited Florida State in the spring of 2022, coming off of that season. And everybody I talked to in the program said that when they started 0-4, Mike Norvell didn't change anything. They kept with exactly what they were doing. They felt that they were on the right path. They didn't panic. They didn't make dramatic changes, and that gave everybody in the program a lot of confidence that they knew what they, what they were doing. 
and they rally to have a, a decent finish to the year. Obviously, they still miss a bowl game. They win ten games. Uh, they win ten games the next year, and now we're now they're number top five in the country. So like this has been the exact type of trajectory you wanted when you hired Mike Norvell when you were Florida State, and it's a lesson in patience and maybe not overreacting a bit too much on Twitter. I do miss the dueling Twitter spaces, though. That really was a very specific time on the internet. All right, let's move on to number three of the Power Five. Got to talk about Colorado. We have spent a lot of time talking about them on our website, in our newsletter, which you should subscribe to, by the way, and on this pod feed. David Ubbin has been chronicling this team all offseason, and I thought he and Ari Wasserman had a great conversation Wednesday night about Colorado, how they did this, how they won that game against TCU. But let's spin forward a little bit. Colorado enters Saturday's game against Nebraska as a three-point favorite per bet MGM. Let me just throw out a couple other odds to you, Chris, since you do some of the picks for, for our site. All right. The plus 1,500 to win the Pac-12, plus 15,000 to win a national championship, which is basically the same as North Carolina and Kansas State. That's where they are right now. And per ESPN, Colorado quarterback Shadur Sanders, coach's son, saw his odds to win the Heisman move from 100 to 1 to 28 to 1 at Caesars. And Travis Hunter's Heisman odds went from 80 to 1 to 22 to 1. By the end of Saturday's game, more bets had been placed at FanDuel on both Sanders and Hunter to win the Heisman trophy than any other player. Not to make this all about like, should you throw a couple bucks on any of these bets, but these are really interesting odds movement and really speak to just a, how many people are paying attention to Colorado right now, but also recalibrating what could be possible. What could still be a long shot, but really like where the season could go. So Chris, I just want to get your thoughts on the Nebraska game and also like what the new floor and ceiling are for the buffs. Yeah. Look, I, I on this feed need to, um, have an uh, apology. I was completely wrong about Colorado in year one in year in, in game one. I, I had TCU, what, minus 20 and a half against um, Colorado is my lock of the week. Obviously, that did not turn out well. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about the Colorado situation in, in the open bar, but it's interesting. Like the, as far as the Nebraska game, TCU's biggest problem going against Colorado, aside from the defense, which was a big issue, but they wouldn't consistently run the ball. And based on what we saw out of Nebraska against Minnesota, I expect Nebraska to run the ball a lot. And so we'll see if Colorado can hold up in that game and can hold up as it goes on. Obviously, the outlook for this Colorado team changes where a bowl game seems possible. Anything seems possible. Like we've just we've never seen this roster turnover before. So we have to react to it in real time and change our perception of what is possible. So in terms of Heisman stuff, it's very early. Like September Heisman is very, very much a thing in college football. It's very possible. We come back in six weeks and Colorado has fallen apart or they might not again. We don't know, but it's fun. It's fun to have a new team in the picture that we're talking about. It's fun to not be talking about how did Ohio state look? How did Clemson look? How did Alabama look? Whatever you think of Deion Sanders, it's fun to be talking about Colorado in general. And Travis Hunter is a hell of a, fun, hell of a lot of fun to watch. So I'm going to keep enjoying that. And game to game, our perception of Colorado may swing uh, dramatically. We'll see. 
I also think that this game and pretty much every Colorado and Nebraska game this season has must see written all over it because I feel like the range of possible outcomes and performances for both of these teams is is pretty wide. So anyway, I can't wait. I'm really excited for this. And I agree, too, that everything is possible now for Colorado. I still don't think it's a CFP or a Pac-12 title, but you just don't know. I, I was blown away by them being able to piece together all that they did last week, and I will no longer doubt them. So congrats to Dion. Congrats to Colorado. This is something totally new. Number four, let's have some final thoughts on ACC expansion that happened late last week after you and I had recorded right before the football game started. So we kind of only had a day to kind of digest it before football happened. But Cal and Stanford and SMU going to the ACC beginning next year. Cal and Stanford will be getting about 30% media revenue for the first seven or eight years of the 13 years left. SMU is going to go with no tier one media rights revenue for nine years. Uh, they wanted in. They wanted in badly. Stanford and Cal needed a life raft. SMU was willing to do whatever it takes to almost buy its way into a conference. Uh, we'll answer more about SMU in the in the mailback as well. But, Nicole, what, what do we think? This is something that has consumed our lives for the past month, right before football, both you and me. Realignment, once again, it seems to be done at the Power 5 level. There are a couple trickle-down things that may happen. But how do you feel about where the ACC got? This was an interesting one because we have been knee-deep in this for so long, and I've been just so in the weeds on, you know, what percentage revenue share people would take and and how it would work and some of the ideas that were being batted around for the success initiatives and just sort of like what would be rewarded that it was jarring a little bit to see like normal people react to this news on Friday and just be like, <laughs> wait, what? What happened here? Because I was just so in the weeds and like was like, oh, I, I here's exactly why these people believe that they needed to do this and this side needed to do this. And it, it was, it was interesting to see just normal people wondering why this happened and how it was going to work and why anyone felt the need to do it, which is a good reminder that this is all going to be very shocking to a lot of people. And the fact that this is all going to be taking place next summer is going to be a really big adjustment for all of us in college sports and also casual sports fans and, and really everyone else. Like there's just going to be a lot of weirdness that's going to happen. Really strange travel schedules, all sorts of things are going to be just, just really strange, but it was a lifeline that was needed for Stanford and Cal. There were a lot of people in the ACC who believe that strength in numbers is important in case Florida state Clemson, UNC, the three no votes, you know, if they decide to leave at some point, you know, you're 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 preemptively trying to avoid what happened to the Pac-12, where I think if the Pac-12 had added after USC UCLA left or preemptively before they did their meteorites deal and the Pac-12 was down to six or eight members, then you're talking about a totally different scenario. You're not talking about Oregon State and, and Washington State needing to drop down to a group of five level and all of the different not great options that they've been presented with this whole time over the last month. So you're trying to avoid that. You're trying to have strength in numbers and just the size of a conference that will exist. And 
you know, Jim Phillips talked about that on Friday and he talked about just the sizes of the other power conferences as we're going to sit here with four power leagues. You got 16, 16, 18, and then 18, including Notre Dame. So that's just kind of where everyone is right now. And obviously moving around the money and creating this pool of money that will possibly, you know, if you hit all of the, the benchmarks, you could get $10 million extra. That's not insignificant amount of money for a Clemson or a Florida State if they hit those benchmarks in football. That is real. That is significant. I don't think it's going to stop anyone from leaving if they think that they can get to the Big Ten or the SEC. But it does address an issue that's been brought up, that has been talked and beat to death. So, you know, you just kind of move forward from here. Everyone knows it was a 12-3 vote. Two of the schools specifically put out statements saying they voted no. The third hinted at it very strongly in Clemson. And I do think people will be able to move forward. No one was like, you know, like burn the ACC down. Like no one was super, super upset about it. Everyone had talked through their issues and the reasons for voting yes or for voting no. So I do think we move on. We just try to figure out how this is going to work, how it's going to look, and what exactly college sports looks like as of 2024 because so much is changing. But it's going to be fascinating. And I think the SMU piece, which I know we're going to get to in a second in the open bar, is fascinating. Just the fact that they are willing to bet on themselves so much and say, this is worth it for us to not take this money for nine years. Let's wrap up the Power Five. We're going to try to do this each week because Chris spends a lot of time doing a 1 to 133, ranking all of the teams in FBS. So I want to give you the floor to celebrate a team or two. Yeah, look, it's if we're technically going to a Power Four, we got to come up with something to fill out the Power Five of the start of this podcast. So uh, let's talk about a couple teams who I got a lot of reactions on. Um, UMass. That's right. The UMass Minutemen might be the first time they've ever been mentioned on this podcast. They are being celebrated for beating New Mexico State on the road in their week zero game. Ended a, I want to say, 15 or 18 game losing streak. It was their first FBS opener win in 40 years, and they looked improved. I had them at 133 on the first rankings at the bottom, and I heard from a lot of upset UMass fans who said, uh, we're going to be better than that. They they were my they were my uh, last call at the end of the last podcast. So they have now moved up to 105. They also lost to, I think, Auburn in week one, understandably. But UMass, moving up to 105, maybe the highest they've ever been in, in these rankings. Like I mentioned before, Florida State is up to number two. Didn't put them ahead of Georgia, but like based on what they did and who they did it to, you could make a case for Florida State at number one. I put them at number two. Not going to knock Georgia off that top spot until... We see something concerning from Georgia as the defending two-time champs. Um, Colorado up to number 15. I had them higher than uh, both of the polls did because, look, they won on the road against a defending national runner-up. That is very impressive. They deserve that. And then one I got a lot of pushback on, Notre Dame, they're at number 20. They were at number 19 in the preseason. So why did they fall a spot after starting off 2-0 looking good? Simply. They just haven't played anybody yet. And for anybody in these rankings who has not played anybody yet, you're generally not going to move. It has nothing to do with what I think about Notre Dame. There's just not a reason to change them yet. Kansas State, who's one spot ahead of Notre Dame, beat Southwest Missouri State 45 to nothing. How is that any different than what Notre Dame did? It's 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 not. We, we don't know yet. When Notre Dame plays Ohio State in a few weeks, when they play some other decent teams, that will change. 
in these early rankings, you can lose a game, you can win a game and drop, but you're not really dropping. You're just being jumped by teams that played somebody. So don't overreact to it when it's early. It's going to be very volatile. It will take a few weeks for things to settle down. Notre Dame fans, I hear you. I know you are very upset. It has nothing to do with how you've looked. It is simply who most people have played. I am watching you. Don't worry. I think you're a Notre Dame hater, hating on Sam Hartman, hating on the rib necklace, the beard. Unfair. Unfair. I, I, I sent I sent I sent this to Nicole. I sent the list to Nicole. And this is what I up. brought up. I said Notre I, I said Dame. What, Notre Dame was low. I said what I said, can you look at this? Make sure I don't have anything out here that looks stupid. And she goes, you know what? I think you have Notre Dame pretty low. <laughs> I so listen to me, Notre Dame fans. <laughs> I also called Chris stupid today. So there we go. I have your back. On that note, we get feedback and we're getting feedback from you guys every week this season. We are soliciting questions to essentially a podcast mailbag section. We're calling it the open bar because, I don't know, we like to name these segments and this makes a lot of sense. So we're taking questions from you each week. You can submit them early in the week on theathletic.com. And I want to run through a couple of the interesting ones that we got this week. Chris, we got a question from Joe. And it's essentially about Colorado. I do, I'm not going to read the entire question, but it's saying that Colorado played a clean game. TCU didn't. Like It was a good game for Colorado. Ari had mentioned on the show that it's hard to game plan for a team with 80 new players. TCU seemed to have no idea how to attack, defend, or scout Colorado's team. The question from Joe is, what degree of confidence should we have that this is not a Texas-Notre Dame game from a few years ago or basically any opening game that we overreact to? It might be. <laughs> like It very well might be. It might be one of those, Texas is back, folks, and then they're not back. It, it's just Colorado, our, our evaluations and predictions and feelings on them is going to change dramatically because there's no baseline to go off of. And when you talk to people around TCU going into this game, they felt pretty good about what they had. They felt good about their team. They felt good about their chances against Colorado. They were a 20-point favorite. But they admitted, like, you don't know until you see it, because you've never seen any of these, almost any of these players play together, other than Shitter Sanders throwing to Travis Hunter. So I think... You look at Sean Lewis's tape at Kent State, the former head coach there who is now the offensive coordinator at Colorado, and you look at probably Alabama tape to see what they run because Charles Kelly, the defensive coordinator, I don't know if if he had ever called a defense before. And you throw on on top of that a bunch of players who have either never played or never played together. You don't know what you're going to get. Ultimately, I don't think TCU coached that game very well. They threw the ball way too much, especially in the red zone especially with Chandler Morris, who was shaky out there. They didn't run the ball nearly enough as much as they should, given what they were doing on the ground, and the results is they lost. TCU could have won that game. Now, if TCU wins that game narrowly, does that change our thoughts on Colorado? Honestly, no. The fact that it was a game and Colorado looked like they deserved to be in the game uh, says what they did. So, yes, this could be... I'm not saying Colorado to the playoff. I'm not saying Colorado even wins eight games. As the season goes on and as you get more film on these players, on this team, you're going to find holes. They're going to wear down, and that's when you have to adjust. So we'll see. You might be right, Joe. This might be another Notre Dame-Texas. I would also like to say that I would like to see, 
what TCU is. I, I really think there's been a yeah. drop off um, at the quarterback position. I think there's been a significant drop off at the offensive coordinator position. So that's where I think the ultimate overreaction could come if TCU continues to fall off this year. And it's something where it's like a top. What was TCU in the preseason? They ranked around 13, something like that. Something like that, or at least if it's not ultimately a top 15 win or top 20 win or whatever it was, you know, we will look back on that differently, but it's still significant to go on the road, win that game the way that they did. So still shout out to Colorado, but I am with you on the hesitation there. Yes, not putting Colorado in the top 10. I just put them at 15. So uh, second question here from Christian W., who says, SMU, really? Is that the best the ACC could do? It seems that Tulane or Memphis were as needy as SMU and bring a lot more to the table. When was the last time SMU did anything legal? Tulane dropped 59 on them last year. Christian, all fair points, but the difference is the potential for SMU. They have been a top 25 team for like the last like four years, or at least gotten into the top 25, but they have built a lot of really good facilities. They have a lot of money to forego them. But like SMU is coming in, but they're not going to be $20 million, $30 million behind everybody. You don't want to bring in somebody who's going to do that. They're going to supplement it. Boosters are going to be paying more than $150 million chipping in to make up that difference. Nobody else, like nobody else can do that. Nobody else has that. So you wouldn't, the idea is you don't bring in a two lane just to sit at the bottom of the conference, you know, and SMU being in Dallas gets, gets the ACC network into Texas, gets it into the number four media market in the country. I think it also works as a great hub. One of the most interesting things I took away from the ACC expansion was the idea that as Cal's chancellor said, uh, the ACC is interested in using Dallas as a hub for some sports like where all the ACC schools could come in and something to save on travel. So we'll see about that. But yes, it's SMU's got academics. It's got money. It's got market. And not many people can match that. You can say what you want about TV ratings and, and, and attendance and all kinds of stuff. But there's a lot of potential there and a lot of money there that is not at a lot of places. What is so interesting to me about the way that SMU bet on themselves and offered five years of not taking revenue, seven years, and ultimately nine years of not taking revenue is it sets the new bar for what someone is willing to accept to join a new conference, right? And that's what, like, I've had that conversation with a number of administrators in the last couple of weeks of, like, just kind of how dangerous that is as a precedent to set. But obviously, not everyone can afford to do this. And I think you just outlined that in terms of the boosters and, and the deep pockets that are here. But it also speaks to like, you're never going to have, if you're the ACC, like you're never going to have people willing to come on this desperately and with this financial scenario. Like they got SMU willing not to take any money for nine years and they're starting with Stanford and Cal taking 30% shares. Like that is so much, so much of a discount. And it becomes hard if you're the ACC to not say yes to that and to not just roll the dice with it. So that's really interesting to me as well, because A, the ACC is getting two power five schools. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Olympic sports and the academic prestige. 
But like you're never really going to get a better offer than what these schools just made. So it's it's really interesting that they did it that way. SMU SMU is coming in to compete and to win. Like they're not coming in just to come in. If you take their 24-7 sports team talent composite rating, which is a high school ranking of every player on the team, current SMU right now would be sixth in the current ACC, higher than Cal and Stanford. Now, a good chunk of that is transfers, former five-star and four-star guys transferring in. But the idea is once they are in the ACC, you can get those better high school players. SMU has been at the top of college football before. They have been in a major conference when the Southwest Conference was a thing. So it's about getting back to that. And they're going to, they are going to invest with the boosters at a level uh, that they're not planning to drop off. They, did, they didn't want to just desperately get in and be a dormant. And by the way, they're not getting no money from the ACC. They're still getting playoff money and simply tournament money. They'll still be making around eight, nine million dollars from the conference, from the ACC, the same amount they were making from the American. So they're not losing money in this deal. They're just not getting more money, which they are offsetting with the boosters. Last question for our first ever open bar segment uh, from Andrew W. Which coach's hot seat just got the hottest? I'm going to go first because I know what Chris is going to say. So I will say that Jeff Halfley's seat heated up, and I know Chris has some thoughts on that. Spoiler but, alert. Yeah, I'm spoiling your answer. <laughs> yes, I'm doing that. Uh, there's no rules here in the open bar segment, but I'm still. I, it's still got to be Neil Brown. I mean, he still has to have the hottest seat in the country. Came into the season that way. Listen, I was impressed. I was at the the Penn State West Virginia game. You know, there's there's a lot of takeaways from the Penn State side, but I thought West Virginia played better than expected. I think they got some weapons offensively, the quarterback, run game. Like these are going to be problems for some other teams. So I was impressed that they hung around as long as they did. But I mean, come on, Chris. Like he's still got to be the hottest seat in the country, right? My concern, not concern, but the question I have with West Virginia and when they decide to make a change, if they're not good, is that West Virginia University as a school is dealing with some major financial problems right now. Gordon Gee, the president, you might remember him from Ohio State. They just cut a lot of departments in that university. And I know the athletic department is separate from the school, but if you're paying millions of dollars to buy out a football coach at the same time, you're cutting like a department it's not a good look so neil brown has to win this year i just wonder if that impacts the timing of things and whether or not he kind of becomes the first to go something to monitor my choice as nicole already spoiled for you is jeff halfley at boston college which just lost to northern illinois in overtime not only did they lose to northern illinois They were trailing by multiple scores for like most of that game. It is really bad there. It's been bad for a few years. It just not, it just hasn't clicked there at a place that is a very difficult job. But Halfley who came in from Ohio state just hasn't really got it going. And this follows the Steve Adazio era. And so it's, it's a tough spot and things are not going well. I have a question for you. Yeah. Does Boston college care about being good at football? Well, yes. I mean, I don't think they don't care, but especially with the ACC situation going on and like you don't want to make you want to make sure you're not falling behind Cal and Stanford and SMU and these teams coming into the league. Uh, 
it's a weird spot. They're up in the Northeast. There's not a lot of talent there. We don't have a Big East anymore, and it just makes for a weird spot. Very tough job there, academics and everything that comes into it. Keep an eye on Boston College as the year goes on. I would just like to point out for my Neil Brown argument, they literally fired their athletic director because they couldn't fire Neil Brown last year. But that's how much they wanted to make a change. Let's move over to the happy hour. It's part of the show. We talk about something we're excited about, something we're enjoying. And there's really no other answer but Duke football and the job that Mike Elko is doing. They win nine games in year one, surpassing expectations by by quite a bit. I, I had their state of the program heading into the 2022 season. Thought that if they made a bowl game, everyone would be thrilled because he inherited a three-win program. They go and win nine in a bowl game, and then they start out year number two with a top 10 upset of Clemson. There's a field storm and Riley Leonard can't get out of his homework assignment, but it was just incredible to witness. And I think anyone who watched Duke play last year knew that this didn't necessarily feel like a massive upset. This wasn't like, you know, David and Goliath or anything because you saw so much of what Mike Elko wanted to instill in this program really early last year. I remember like watching them play temple and saying, wow, they're they're really sound defensively. They, they have a clear identity offensively. And then all offseason, Riley Leonard is one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC. And I think he introduced himself to the nation in what he did in, in this game against Clemson, especially when he just kind of took off and ran. Just the toughness. Um, it was really, it, it was just remarkable. And, you know, this is a place that has really not had much success historically. Football-wise, the 1989, the last year that they beat a top 10 opponent. They won the ACC at Steve Spurrier. We, we know they went to an ACC championship game under David Cutcliffe, and, and he did a remarkable job, tried to squeeze everything he could out of Duke. But this is a, a really hard place to, to, to be good at football, to sustain. You have the academic thresholds and hard to get transfers in, but also recruits. You, you have questions of their commitment to this sport and the resources that have, have been brought to it. It's a basketball school. You're right next to Cameron Indoor. I've been there a million times. And I spent time with Mike Elko last summer, or last spring, actually, as he took the job, explaining why he took the job, why he believed that they could actually win and sustain it there. The resources, the commitment, the alignment from the administrators, the, the salary pool for the assistance, which they believed to be in the top five of the ACC. And he's just a really smart, cerebral guy. You know, he went to an Ivy League school, really smart, thoughtful guy. He 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 leans heavily on analytics. Um, everything is kind of like it's almost a, like a science, not so much of an art for decisions he makes in games. And I, I just I was blown away by it, but not shocked. I've been looking forward to this game, been talking this game up, thought it was gonna sneak up on some people. Wasn't the world's most uh aesthetically pleasing game, but you know, if you're a Duke fan, it certainly was. We got a uh, shout out Manny Navarro, our colleague who on this podcast feed during the uh, oddly specific predictions podcast that him and I did. He picked Duke to win this game weeks ago. He picked it and Duke won. They beat Clemson. So shout out to Manny for getting that right. I went into Duke this season thinking, all right, they won't have the same amount of turnover luck as they did last year. They recovered almost every single fumble they lost. Their their their, their turnover margin, I think, was second in the country to USC. I think very close to the top of the country. 
Well, then Clemson goes out and fumbles twice inside the 20-yard line and gives it over and, and misses two field goals. So look, may, maybe Duke will have that. Maybe Duke will continue to have that. You know, Dabo made the point. Clemson, when, rush, when rushing and throwing for 200 yards each, had been 108-0 and all time, and they lost that game. He is right when he says it is one of the strangest games he's ever been a part of. That's not to say Clemson would have won the game easily. If they don't make those mistakes, it's probably a close game instead of 28-7, to which is the weirdest part of all of it. But, like, look, Duke can do things now. We've seen it under David Cutcliffe. Like, it fell off, but we know there is there can be proof of concept there. To win nine games in his first season, really, really good run. I didn't expect that this year because of the schedule, which is also a lot harder this year than last year. Yet, they're opening the game... Opening the season with a win over Clemson. And Riley Leonard looks like a very good quarterback. So, going to have to keep watching Duke from here on out. Also, shame on the coaches poll, which has Clemson over Duke in the coaches poll. It makes no sense. I know the coaches don't fill out the polls, but but guys, come on. Duke just be Clemson. They should be ahead of Clemson okay. on well, your ballot, please. Okay, but but this, this speaks to uh, maybe some East Coast bias, or, or sorry, non- no, maybe people didn't stay up. What am I trying to say? Just You're trying to say people to didn't stay up for the game because it was a Labor Day weekend, holiday sure, weekend. Sure am. Maybe even submitted it before the game. I think there were some ballots in the AP poll that uh, that seemed to have done the same thing. Stay up. Vote after all the games are done. Come on. Come on, people. Um, that anger feels accurate as we head into our On the Rock segment because this is where we get a little worked up, where we work through some angst. There's always tension somewhere, somewhere in this sport. So we got to start on the other side of that game. Clemson football. This was a very highly anticipated game one for people who wanted to see a different offense. They wanted to see Garrett Riley fresh off that run that TCU made. They wanted to see Kate Klubnick. So much of the blame for everything that had gone wrong offensively the last couple of years fell on DJ Uangalele's shoulders. We just saw him have a great debut for Oregon State. Completed 80% of his passes, bunch of touchdowns, like he was phenomenal. And then, you know what? The Clemson offense did not look very different. It looked slow. It looked like it was hard. Everything came difficult to Klubnik. And not much change. I mean, again, so so you're, you're going to not expect to have so many fluky plays and mistakes and so many trips to the red zone or inside the 10 and not score. But there's clearly some problems here with Clemson. Yeah, look, if Clemson makes those field goals, if they don't blow up in the red zone, if they win this game 27 to 20 or 21 to 17, you're still having a lot of concerns about Clemson. They just they haven't had playmaking wide receivers in a while. And I know we point to, hey, they had Deshaun Watson, they had Trevor Lawrence. As soon as Dabo didn't have his otherworldly quarterbacks, it fell apart. It's not just the quarterbacks. It's the wide receivers that is a big, big part of it. And Trevor Etienne being gone, one of the best running backs in ACC history, is part of it. They've got Jordan Shipley, and that's it. That's all they have in terms of talented skill players, which is wild because this team is fifth in the 24-7 sports team talent composite. Clemson, the last couple of years, they're star saying, rating. Why are you saying that word so weirdly? It's a composite. Com- composite, composite? I don't know. I That's not how you pronounce that word. I was going to let it slide, but you said it twice mm, now. It's composite. Mm, I'm going to look this up after the show. If, if okay. you think I'm pronouncing it wrong, if other people listening think I'm pronouncing this wrong, let me know. I, I, 
look, I used to play hockey growing up and that was, that's what, there was like a composite stick that like, that's what we called it. I think that's just where I'm getting that from. I don't know. 24th worth team talent rankings is the, is, is the phrase I want to use anyway, but they're like fourth, fifth and fifth over the last three years. The years they won the national championship, they were ninth and sixth. So like they've technically gotten better, but they're not developing guys into stars like they used to across the board. And that's a problem. And you wrote a column about this. Yeah. I mean, I looked at it through the lens of the transfer portal and Dabo's unwillingness to go there, because if there are a couple positions like, say, receiver or let's say you need, you know, to to the offensive line needs to be better because you're not really controlling games at the line of scrimmage. Well, there's this 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 entity, there's this thing out there that exists and it's called the transfer portal. And you can immediately plug and fill those holes and Dabo won't use it. And it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that you look at 2021 when the drop off begins for Clemson. And that's the year that the one time transfer rule passes and changes. So you really know that you can have that immediately immediate eligibility boost. You don't have to wait a year or hope that a waiver gets passed. And you don't have to wait for your high school recruits to get to campus and then to develop them. And there's a lot of reasons why maybe someone doesn't hit, right? So so maybe, you know, they just don't pan out or or they get injured or they they leave and they transfer, whatever it is. The easiest way to replace them is not to sign another 17, 18 year old and again, have to wait and develop and hope that they pan out, but it's to go get an established 20 year old player. Like that's how you solve problems in college football in 2023. And all of the other top teams do that. So they don't have these deficiencies. Or a 23 year old player. if He's got a six or seven year of eligibility (laughs) or a 25 year old player, right? Like there's, we got like seven years. We've got some old guys this year, just like Stetson Bennett, but like, that's how you do it these days. Like, you don't have to be Deion Sanders and flip an entire roster, but you should be sure, you should be a lot more like Mike Norvell, who is supplementing his high school recruiting and the way that he's building his program through traditional means with the portal. And he's hitting on those guys. We saw Keon Coleman go nuts against LSU. We all knew that he was going to be a massive pickup for them. We all knew he'd be a focal point in the offense. Well, you know what? That's a receiver that was in the portal. There were a lot of receivers in the portal that Clemson did not add, did not sign. And Florida State has done this. You know, Jared Verse was someone who was at Albany. That was a really great find. You and I were crunching the numbers earlier before the column ran about just how many all ACC players Mike Norvell had that were initially transfers. Like, that's just how it's done these days. And it's supplementing. It's not overtaking high school players you're signing. It's not overtaking Florida State needs to develop and, and build depth at the offensive line and do things that are just like fundamentally important to the program. But it's how you solve the problems. And Dabo's not doing that. And so you watch this game and you say, wow, they could have really used a great receiver. You know what? There were receivers in the portal that he's not taking, that he's not adding. And like it's like there are ways to address the problems. Max sent me this stat earlier today. There were 363 FBS wide receivers who transferred this offseason and 108 of them landed with power five programs. That's a lot of options. How many went to Clemson? Zero. 
Zero. Zero. Yeah. And so that's the problem. So there's a lot of other things, but my main point with this is you don't want the game to pass you by. You don't want to be right. behind the times. And we've seen coaches adapt when like the style of play changes and there's RPOs or, you know, initially spread offenses, right? And you watch people adapt to the times. Well, this is adapting to the times and Clemson is not doing it and their drop-off is happening while everyone else is able to plug their holes because they're willing to do it. And he's not. Yeah, look, you know, most top college football programs go on a really good run of five or so years, and then they fall off. We saw it with USC, with Florida, uh, with, with um, a lot of these dynasties at Miami, you know, the first, the second time around. It's hard to sustain. And Alabama has sustained at a level we've really never seen before. You know, Florida State kind of in the 90s a bit, Nebraska had a minute there but to consistently being contending for the national championship year in and year out. And it's because Nick Saban adapts. It's because, you know, when he gets beat by Johnny Manziel and, and Ole Miss quarterbacks, he decides to change what he does on defense and get looser and quicker and smaller at linebacker to make up for that. And now he's kind of going the other way. And, and you know, Kirby Smart said, you know, they won national championships without many guys from the portal. Um, we'll see if they can sustain at the level Alabama has because that is basically unprecedented. I was talking to Seth Emerson about that, though, and that wasn't because they were trying to make a point. He, he brought up how every time Kirby talked about that and not adding any transfers between the first and second national championship team was because there just wasn't anyone who was right for what they were looking for and the positions and the right fit and all of those things. But he took transfers this year. You've got one starting. You've got another as a key and important contributor. It, it's not something that's not important to, to Kirby Smart because, again, it's where the world is right now, and he is willing to go there, and Dabo is not. By the way, while you were talking, Cam, our producer, said he's heard the word composite or composite pronounced both ways. I looked up the pronunciation while you were talking. The way I said it, composite, that is considered the UK way of saying it. So it is technically correct. No, it is not. You are not British. Come on. This is I, I I've got fam I've got family from Cornwall that goes back family. To my family. 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 Uh well like I don't want to argue too much about this, even though this is the on the rock segment. Because we do need to get to our last calls. This is the part of the show where we cheers or jeers. We do whatever we might be doing as the bar is closing. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., wherever, whatever the time is in whatever place you are listening. We celebrate something that we haven't talked about. We rant about something that has us boiling. Uh, Chris, I'm going to let you go first here for the first last call of the season actually underway. My last call is going to be for Tulane quarterback Michael Pratt, who came into the season with a lot of uh, hype and attention, someone who turned down the transfer portal and stayed at Tulane when he had a lot of interest from a number of Power 5 schools. He goes out, and in their Tulane's first game, they beat South Alabama 37-17. to Pratt goes 14 for 15, passing for 294 yards, four touchdowns. And this is a Tulane team that lost a lot of weapons from last year. I think we had some questions about if they could uh, continue what they did last year winning the Cotton Bowl. Pratt was electric in that first game. And Tulane hosts Ole Miss this weekend. So among the many interesting Week 2 games we've got this week, uh, Ole Miss Tulane is one you're going to want to keep one of your screens on. Keep an eye on Michael Pratt uh, and Tulane. 
Uh, my cheers is going to college football pettiness. You know how much I love this. It's one of my favorite things about the sport. You don't always get it in pro sports in the same way. So this is a cheers to this uh, rivalry, pettiness, whatever we're getting between Alabama and Texas. They're going to play more because they're going to be in the same conference starting next year. But this is a, a little fun one heading into the second game of the home and home. Apparently last year when Texas hosted Alabama, the Alabama band was not there because Texas was going to force them to sit in the upper deck. So they decided not to send the band. And Alabama has decided to return the favor. Uh, as it turns out, Alabama does not have to meet the SEC requirements of 2,000 visiting tickets located in the lower bowl because they're not in the SEC yet. So they're not. So all 5,000 visitor tickets, according to the Tuscaloosa News, will be in the upper deck, and that includes seats for the band. Greg Byrne, the athletic director of Alabama, said, we are able to reciprocate a similar seating arrangement to what we had last year in Austin. Bring it on. I love this. Be as petty as you want. Return the favors. No one's forcing you to put them in the lower bowl. I love this. Oh, I want to add to the pettiness here because we leading into that Clemson-Duke game, Dabo Sweeney complained about the locker room situation at Duke. He said it takes too long to walk to the visitor locker room. You lose a couple of minutes, and he didn't like it. Duke goes on to win. They shut out Clemson in the second half, and the social media team tweeted out, the walk must have been too long, and then a graphic with a second with a second half shutout. We also had a, a Florida player who referred to Utah Stadium as a, as a little off stadium, and then we had uh, Utah respond that they got a little odd dub after that. I like it. I like the pettiness. I like the banter. This is fun. Keep taking shots at other people. Let's do it. Cheers to all involved in all of these things. If you win the game, you can trash talk. That's the rule. Otherwise, you know, you could change the outcome on the field. So we'll wrap up this week's Power Hour on that note. Embrace the petty. We're here for you. And again, we'll get into the clock rules next week. I actually kind of think, I just want to put it out there, that people are just really mad about the commercials and they're blaming the clock. But we'll get into all of that next week. Be sure to hang out on this feed until Saturday. There'll be shows all week. All of our friends, it's going to be a good time. We like to have a lot of fun with this sport. So be sure you're following this feed so that you get new episodes as soon as they're out. And, you know, again, if you like them, give us a five-star rating and a review. If you want to hang out when we go live, Hit the subscribe button on our YouTube channel because we're going to be live on every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. Subscribe to the Until Saturday newsletter so you can get us in written form at The Athletic and all of our best stories. And like I said, submit some questions to us for the open bar for Power Hour. You'll be able to see a prompt for that early next week. And for Chris Vanini, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening to Power Hour. We'll talk to you soon. Power Hour.